Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This morning, we have Mr. Richard Stammer, who is our guest today. He is going to be inducted into the Cooperative Hall of Fame on May the 8th at the National Press Club, dinner time and, and the induction ceremony is from 7 to 9.30 p.m. Mr. Stammer, good morning. How are you doing? Good morning, Vernon. So I understand you were a tenured professor of agricultural economics, and then you took on the daunting role of being a CEO of two companies that were going bankrupt. That's correct, yes. <laughs> okay, how does that go from... In the classroom, which I've taught a few years at, at the college level where it's nice and neat and safe and jump into the firing pan of real life business running and people's lives and communities involved and you're working on that. What was that like? Well, it, it was, uh, as you can imagine, uh, a huge change. As you said, life as a tenured professor is, is pretty nice, but um it's the type of thing where I, you know, I had, I had done what I wanted to do at the university and was really looking for more challenges. And so uh, I had been doing some consulting work for Agrimark, and when they offered me a job first to come there as an economist, and then uh, you know I worked my way up through chief operating officer and then CEO. So you had done what you wanted, and you were looking for challenges, and you got challenged. <laughs> and I got challenged, yeah. <laughs> you got challenged. I, I, I went back to the university a few times to, uh, you know, talk with my colleagues, and they said, well, you know, what's the big difference between the university and the scary new world? And I said, well, here at the university, you know, we'll spend three years doing some research and writing up a paper and maybe finally get it published. And that uh, in the real world, you have uh, a few hours to make a couple million dollar decision. And people's lives and communities. And, yes. And lot depends on it. <laughs> yes. So let, let's go all the way back to see, how did you become a tenured professor? That's a process. So yeah, that, that's, that's quite a process. I, I got a, a bachelor's and a master's degree at uh, Rutgers University and then a Ph.D. at the University of Connecticut. And then uh, after I got my Ph.D., you know, I was looking around for jobs, and Rutgers University wanted me to come back there. So I started back there as an assistant professor and, uh, you know, again, worked my way up to a tenured position. And, again, it's the usual stuff, teaching, research, publishing, all those things you have to do. So what year did you get your Ph.D.? I got my Ph.D. in 1971. And when were you tenured? I was tenured, I believe it was 1978 or 79. Well, that's quick. That's great. 
That's phenomenal. Okay, so it only took you seven or eight years to get tenured after the PhD at Rutgers. And though, what I find interesting when I say it's quick is that a lot of times you've got to have a lot of research and you've got to have people in your corner that's working for you and you're doing things that people like and you're teaching and your students like you, you got a lot to become tenured. So that was congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It does, it does take a lot. And, you know, when I told my colleagues there that who, a lot who were struggling to get tenure that I was leaving for the real world, a lot of them couldn't believe it. <laughs> you got to be crazy. What are you talking about? This is tenure. This lifetime is hard to get fired. You got to do something really stupid to get fired. You got decent income. You're in a safe environment. Why would you leave that? Hey, you say you want challenge. Okay. <laughs> I was I was still pretty young, you know. So I wanted challenge. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. We won't say what goes with young and, but okay, I got it. <laughs> I got. It. Okay, so then you were doing consulting for Agrimark, and what is Agrimark? Okay, Agrimark is a dairy cooperative based in our our home base is in New England and New York State. That's where our farmer members are from. And we market all the milk of our farmer members and uh, represent them legislatively. And, you know, that's basically our function to, to try to add value to their milk. So you have a sense of how many farmers there were there when you went there? And when did you go there, by the way? I went there in uh, 1982. And I believe in 1982, we we had a little over 2,000 farmers, I believe. Okay. And today we have around 1,000. Okay, we'll come back and talk about that reduction, half of them. So, so, but as a cooperative, you got all of these farmers producing milk, and so you are helping them to market and add value to their milk. And in legislation, you're looking at different ways, different legislation both I guess on the regional level and the national level to help the farmers. That that's correct. They are farmer members of Agrimark. We have a contract with them to we market all of their milk. So they can produce uh, however much milk they want. They make their own decisions on their own farms. We take that milk from them and uh, sell it, run it through our plants, market it, uh, do whatever we can to get the highest return for our farmers and any profit we make goes back to our farmers and they also invest some equity in the cooperative so you know so we have equity to run the business and then in dairy there's 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 federal legislation there's local legislation there's environmental legislation there's there's lots of things that affect the individual dairy farmer Mm -hmm. And uh, we represent them at a lot of different levels of government. So I have it there basically four types of co-ops. If a co-op is owned by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. Therefore, you can have any type of company could be owned by the employees. And then if it's owned by the people that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer cooperative. You normally have credit unions, housing co-ops. But any business also could be owned by the people that uses it. Um, in Madison, Wisconsin, there's a health clinic that's owned by the patients. So it's a patient-centric cooperative. And then farmers and artists and other people had two other types of co-ops. And that is one is when they purchase 
their the kinds of things that they need to farm or artists to create what they want to create. They would come together and they would buy their seed or their fertilizers and normally get a better product at a lower price working through a co-op. And on the other end of the farm, once they take these products that they use, need, and they create something, in this case, dairy farmers creating milk, then they sell it to a marketing or they call it sometimes it's a producer cooperative. And that's what you're telling me Agrimark was. It's a marketing cooperative that takes all of that milk from 2000 farmers in 1982 add some value to it, package it, do stuff, and get it to markets that that individual farmer probably could not get it to and therefore get the best price that you can for that farmer. And if there's profit, then they get some of that too. Okay. Yeah, we would classify ourselves as a marketing cooperative. Right. And again, uh, all of our profit goes back to our farmers. Some goes back in cash and some is an equity investment in the cooperative, which they get back when they go out of farming. So, okay, even if you keep money, um, if you had a $100 of profit, all of that goes to the farmer. It could go in one or two different ways. One is at cash, or the other one, it goes in equity. That's correct, yes. Okay. Because I've heard some in this program, some co-ops will also say some of that profit could go to the community to help community problems. They had well, three we, different things. Yeah, we do a lot of community work, but that really comes out of our operating expenses. It's part of our operating budget. Okay. So that really comes out before profit. Okay. So if I could, at 1982, when you made this choice to go out of this safe environment and jumped into the frying pan or into the from the frying pan into the fire. But how old were you? You said young. I got it. But how old were you yeah. in 1982? Let's see. In 82, I was uh, 41 years old. Okay. So it's young because today I'm 75. Right? <laughs> Age okay. is all relative. That's all relative. And so in 40, at 41, did you have a family and children and all of that? Yes, I had uh, had two children. They were pretty young at that point. I think they were like uh, six and three. And they were really at an age where we could move them pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I, we, we really wanted, we loved New England. And we wanted, to, uh, we wanted to relocate to New England from New Jersey, which is where Rutgers is. So it was really kind of everything kind of meshed together. Okay, it was it was the right opportunity, the right time, in the right place. Okay, so it's, it's clear you are what I would call heavy. You're smart. You've got this PhD. You've gone through this, and you've done it at a relatively young age. Got tenure uh, relatively quick. Says that also says you're highly intelligent, and you're taking that intelligence now, and you're going to take it to the real world. And in the cooperative. So how did you get involved in co-op? So I assume because you're in agriculture and agriculture and Department of Agriculture in the U.S. Department of Agriculture seems to know more about co-ops than any other department in, in the U.S. government. So I assume you you learned about it by being in agriculture. But where did you first learn about co-ops? <laughs> I actually learned it's kind of an interesting story with, I would say, my first mentor. I grew up in New Jersey, okay, suburban New Jersey, 
And my father worked for Bell Labs, and he had a good friend who worked there also who was laid off during the Depression. And his wife came from a farm, and so they went to dairy farming. And during the summers, we used to visit them for a week or two. And I became really interested in dairy farming. And then from, oh, about eighth grade all through high school, and a little bit of college, I worked on uh, this farm all my whole summer. And I had proposed to this farmer. They had no children of their own. So I proposed to him that, you know, could I work my way up, work for him, in an equity, get an equity position, and maybe someday take over the farm? I, I love the farm. And he said to me, the world has enough farmers. What they need are people who can help farmers. Mm. And then he kind of introduced me to cooperatives and explained all the cooperatives that helped him in his business. So he belonged to a marketing cooperative. He belonged to a supply cooperative. He borrowed money from a cooperative bank. And so it was, so he kind of introduced me to the world of cooperatives. And so then when I went to college, that was kind of my focus. You know, I would like to work in this cooperative world. And then that's kind of how I structured my academic career. That's like, wow, because I'm 72 this year and I didn't learn about co-ops until about 25 years ago. So 50, 45, 50th before I learned. And that was in managing housing co-ops. Yeah, And then I have fallen in love with this model and wish I had learned about it when I got my MBA and nowhere in my formal education did I know about co-ops, but we're going to take, we're going to take our first break. Okay. And uh, Richard, it's an absolute pleasure. We'll come back and talk a little bit more about this, this sort of beginning with co-op. We'll be right back. Okay. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, uh, and the program is Everything Co-op, and we are talking to Mr. Richard Stammer, who is on the line, Dr. Richard Stammer. You know, we were talking before the break of how you learned about co-ops and working on a farm. You were working on the farm from the eighth grade, which is about 13, 14 years old, all the way through college, and you had somebody give you some great advice. A lot of farmers, but farmers need help, and he taught you about co-ops. You know, I spent 12 years teaching, 10 years in the corporate level, 26 years of my own business with property management, about 48 years of a career. And we've been doing this radio program for about five and a half years. And it wasn't, Richard, until 10 years ago, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> I didn't well, know, I didn't know before that. You got it very young. I, I, I really... I've envied people like you. They said, I know what I want to do, and you're working toward it. I've just said, okay, whatever I do, I would do it with excellence. But 10 years ago, I decided I want to promote and develop co-ops. I like it so much. Well, I, I would say I didn't have that clear a picture. I knew I wanted to do something in agriculture and, and with cooperatives. And my, my first career path was at the university mm -hmm. where, um, you know, I, I taught classes there and I actually worked with some of the small cooperatives in New Jersey, but that was sort of my first career path. And then, then it took a dramatic change to actually work directly for cooperatives. So I think we all we all kind of feel our way around 
know, I, I also advise students at the university, and the, you know, I'd have freshmen come in and say, "Boy, I don't know what I want to do," and I say to them, "Don't feel bad." Yes, right. That's why I was telling the same thing. Okay. You know, we we, we sort of follow where we sort of follow path where opportunity takes us. But if I hadn't have worked on that farm, like most Americans, I probably wouldn't know much about cooperatives. Yep. Yep. Well, this program, the National Co-op Bank is sponsoring it so that we can let people know about co-ops and the benefits of co-ops, particularly, like you said, in, in Agrimark, you, you had money in your budget to help the community. And I like it even better than uh, some people said one third went to the community, one third was saved to grow the business, and one third went back in dividends or patronage fund back to the owners. But you have it built into your budget to help the community? Well, you know, part of that is, um, of, of course, you know, this comes out, as I said before, any profit distribution. So our owners, our farmer members, they have to support these activities or we wouldn't be doing them, but you know, they all live in communities. Farmers generally are pretty involved in their communities. You know, they're on the school board. They're on various committees. So, you know, they're quite involved in their community. So they support our efforts to help communities. They, they see that as an extension of them. Really. Right. I find that co-ops do. It's built in a community. The people live in that community. Uh, they spend their money in that community. They help the, whatever the problems of that community are really involved in it. And that's I think the ethical values of co-ops are honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. So right in that value statement, that's taking care of others and being social responsible. It fits. That's very true. I mean, as you know, there's, there's real personal satisfaction in working for a cooperative. You know, it's not the highest paying job in the world, but I will tell you that it's uh, the personal satisfaction is enormous. Well, I've seen some research when you talk about compensation, and you mentioned highest payment, and I think you mean in terms of dollars. In terms of dollars, right. But when you look at total compensation, dollars turn out to be not the most important piece when the research is done on what employees look for. And that personal satisfaction is high at the top. Also helping community, caring for family, safety, security. Uh, dollars fall in there, but it's it's down toward the bottom of the list of the top 10, not toward the top. And I always found uh, that interesting because most folks, like I did when I was younger, was always looking for the highest paying job until I get into that job and find out, well, wait a minute, am I happy? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say it, it's very true. It, it, it sort of varies, you know, with uh, the position in the company. I mean, for a person who's working, let's say, in our manufacturing plants, most of them, at least when they start, are, you know, the, the dollar's important and we pay competitive wages. As people move up the scale of management, maybe our wages become somewhat less competitive than uh, other sectors, but they get into the co-op feeling and that personal satisfaction is, as you said, makes up for money. I, I told some of my business colleagues, you know, the real satisfaction for me is I can drive down the road and see one of my owners, the guy I'm working for out on the tractor, working hard. 
And I know that every dollar I can make for, for the co-op helps him. And that satisfaction is huge. Huge. And I don't think you can pay somebody a dollar for that satisfaction. That's huge. No, it is. And it's, and it's, I don't really know him. I know his family. For <laughs> yeah. a lot of them, okay? And the community they live in. So it's just that personal satisfaction is pretty much invaluable. Well, a couple things I would love to see some research on. Dr. Jessica Gordon-Emhart has written a book called Collective Courage, looking at African-Americans and the co-op movement, particularly through the civil rights, but going all the way back. And I've had her on the show several times, but the last time she told me there was some research done that said when people work together, that the body throw off chemicals and she thought it was dopamines and people feel better hmm. and that, that's, that's <laughs> yeah and I want I haven't seen the research it makes sense to me that the particular that that's high, highest satisfaction you're talking about is personal satisfaction and during women's month last month I forgot who was talking about it said that women throw off more dopamines working together than men. And maybe that's why more women are in the co-op movement than men. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Again, don't know if this is true, but it, it makes for some, some interesting conversation because of this personal satisfaction that you talked about, but what might be happening chemically in the body. And, Oh, I know what I wanted to tell you. There was a lady from Finland on the show last year and Finland won the UN's happiest country award for last year. And I had her on the show and she said, well, you know why people are happy in Finland? And she said that Finland have the highest number of people in co-ops than anywhere else in the world. I don't know where really? she got that number from, but that's what she said. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. And so that there's more people in Finland that belong to, and she was saying, you know, three or four different co-ops that you may belong to. And like your farmer, he's a marketing co-op, a supply co-op, a cooperative bank, but a person, like I'm a member of a food co-op, a credit union, and I live in a housing co-op. Yeah. So if you look at the different numbers of co-ops that people in Finland, Finland belong to, there's a lot. Okay. Whether it's the highest number or not, I don't know, but that's what she said. And she said that's the reason they won the happiest country award because the higher number of people work or live in or are belong are members of co-ops. I found that very interesting. So that's why I, I said I, it would be great to do this research. Well, it would be. And, and to me, you know, we live in a world today where businesses are getting bigger. But people have this desire for more local, more more control, more hands-on. And to me, the co-op model is the perfect model to kind of, to kind of deal with that. Uh, that, you know, you, you can have, you can be part of something. And you can be part of something that's local and that gives you value. And so it, it's really unfortunate more people don't understand the cooperatives. Well, that's what I am trying to do. Again, that's been my life mission of what I figured I want to do is to get people to understand it. And if we can get more and more people to understand it, then I think more people will gravitate toward using co-ops and or belonging to or starting co-ops. 
And I looked over your information. It seemed like that's one of the things you pushed for was making sure people understood this model. I'm a proselytizer for co-ops. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's a, I think it's a great business model. Okay. You know, we're going to take our next break. And when I come back, I want to talk a little bit more about Agrimark and what is what it did and how you got over this bankruptcy and merging with Cabot and becoming the chief executive officer of both Agrimark and Cabot Cheese. And we've had Roberta McDonald, the marketing person, on. Yes. So, uh, but we'll take our second break and we'll come right back and talk a little bit more about these two businesses and the personal satisfaction you got. This program is Everything Cooperative. You know, this program is sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank. They have been a partner, a friend, a mentor. They've helped us to grow and they really, really push us to to tell tell this story. Because NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So it's a different kind of a bank. I mean, most banks don't go into low-income communities because most banks look for people that already have assets. So if they make a loan, then if the loan goes down, they can go to these other assets and get their money back. But NCB has figured out a way of going into low-income communities, helping them create cooperatives. And when they create cooperatives, all the things that Mr. Richard Stammer and I have been talking about, Dr. Stammer and I have been talking about today happens. And people really work together, and most co-ops don't fail. So they stay in, and they pay back their loans. So it's been working. So, Dr. Stammer, we were talking about Agrimark and Cabot Creamery. So can you tell us a little bit more about when you got when you got to Agrimark, you had talked about that you worked your way up to CEO. But when did this bankruptcy come about? Well, I came there in 1982. And like I said, I came as their economist. And at that point, Agrimark, along with Agway, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but that was a farm supply cooperative in the Northeast, since taken over by Southern states. But they had joined together to buy a uh, dairy company in New England, the H.P. Hood Company. And Agrimark farmers had this commitment to trying to get, trying to get in the value-added products to get more return, so they put up the money to make this purchase of the Hood Company happen. Well, that didn't really work out as we had thought it would. So in around 1990, Agrimark and Agway broke up our partnership with the Hood Company, and we got some payment out of that, which we put in equity. And so, so we, had, we had some equity, cooperative equity, but as a co-op itself, Agrimark, all we were basically doing was taking milk from our members and selling it to somebody else. And our farmers really wanted to get back in, into the consumer products business. And as Agrimark itself, I would say we were a break-even company. You know, some years we would lose money, some years we would make money. 
but it was pretty much break-even business. And then the, the Cabot Cooperative, which was a small separate co- cooperative in Vermont, they went bankrupt around 1982. You, you're saying Cabot, so, C-A-B-O-T, Cabot? C-A-B-O-T. Mm-hmm. You can buy Cabot cheese, in, certainly in the Washington area. Sure. And throughout most of the country now, okay? So so they they went bankrupt. And we're looking at what to do, and so I worked within the Agrimark and convinced our people that we ought to merge with Cabot. Uh, We wanted to get in the consumer products business. We had some equity, and Cabot was bankrupt. So put together a whole merger plan, presented it to our farmers, and they agreed. They wanted to get back into the consumer products business, and at that point, Cabot was a pretty small marketing company. I think they had, oh, maybe 150 farmers and sold mostly in Vermont and a little bit throughout the rest of the England. So, so we merged with them. When we merged, we had, uh, and this is in 1982, we had a, kept their original CEO on for a couple of years, but it really wasn't working out. The company was still struggling. He was not really into being a farmer-owned cooperative. Okay. So so we let him uh, go, and then I took over in 1994 as uh, CEO of Cabot. Cabot is, is um, they're celebrating 100 years now. Yes, this is our 100th anniversary. So if, if, if this merger hadn't happened, they may not have been around. Okay. I don't think I don't think they would have been around. I think they probably would have sold the consumer products business to Kraft or somebody else, and you know the farmers would have disbanded and joined some other cooperative. So uh, yeah, so we got together. I took over as CEO, and you know we grew we grew the business from pretty much a Vermont business to pretty much a nationwide business now. Wow, you don't. Okay. I had no idea that they went bankrupt in 1992, was it? 92, right. Yep. Yeah, I I didn't know that part of their story. So when Agrimark came in, the merger, when they went bankrupt, basically the farmers who who owned Cabot at that point, had they had no equity left. They had lost all their equity. So as part of the merger, we restored their equity. So the so the existing Cabot farmers didn't lose any equity. They gained, you know, equity now in Agrimark, which was the parent comp- parent cooperative, and then that equity grew from from that point on. Well, those 150 farmers must really like Agrimark. <laughs> I I think they I think they did it after a time. You know, it, at, at the time it was sort of most of them. I would say the majority wanted to merge and become part of Agrimark, but, you know, they were a struggling cooperative and there's always some dissenters in that. Right. But after, uh, after a period of time and they saw that we could perform, I think most of them ended up being pretty happy. But how did you go from 2000 farmers to 1000 for Agrimark? Did they, did the farmers get bigger or what happened there? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much, uh, 
it's pretty much the trend. Well, the whole it's a trend in agriculture, and pretty much a trend in the whole dairy industry. That there's every year there's less and less farmers, and the farmers that survive are bigger than the, the farmers that didn't survive. So although we have half half as many farmers, we have about the same amount of milk as we had. So you, it was kind of the it was kind of the progression that we see in agriculture. Farmers are getting less and less. The farmers who remain are getting bigger. In those economies of scale, that's that that the bigger farmers you need to be bigger in order to make the farming work. Well, there's there's really a lot of factors. I think the most significant one is a lot of our small farmers, they work 24-7. Wow. There's no vacation. There's no anything because the cows have to be milked twice a day every day of the year. And so their, their life is the farm. Then they have children, and, you know, some of those children want to come to the farm, but the farm's not big enough to support two families, so they have to get bigger. Now, if, if you looked at, you know, cows per family, they wouldn't be that much bigger, but the farm itself has to get bigger just to support two families. And then what usually happens is maybe there's another child that wants to farm. And so the farm, again, has to get bigger to support three families. When that happens, something else happens, and now they find out that Boy, we can split up labor on the farm, so we all don't have to work twenty four seven. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, okay. So, so that makes that makes a much better lifestyle for the farmers. They can actually take a vacation and take a day off. And, and a lot of the farms that went out, they didn't have family members who wanted to take over the farm. The next generation didn't want to work twenty four seven. I can't blame them. <laughs> I mean, and so those farms just just went out of business. So so as I look at what happened over these years, yes, the farms got bigger, but the farms the farms that survived really were the farms. They they were kind of multi generational farms, and they were farms where they could divide up labor, so people you know people could have more of a life. Okay. So it's. Uh, you know, as I as I look back on it now, you know, we, we always hated to see farmers go out. But as I look look back on it now and I see uh I think it's a more sustainable model. We have we have probably more young people today on farms who wanna stay in farming than we did ten, twenty years ago because they're in a multi generational farm where they can uh have a life. And where a spouse would like to live that night. So uh, I think it's a better picture. And just to give you an example, we, we run a program for, for young cooperators. These are young people who work on farms. Now, when you say we, is that Agrimark or Cabot or Agri- both? Well, Agrimark and Cabot. They're, so we run this program for young farmers, teach them about most of the program is focused on cooperatives what a cooperative is, what a cooperative does for you, how a cooperative works. About, oh, probably 15 years ago, that program almost died because we didn't have, we just didn't have enough young farmers to support that. And today I would say that program's as vibrant as it's ever been. 
we have a lot of young people on farms interested in farming because they can live a life. And these these people are pretty exciting. You know, they're on social media. They they're very involved in their communities, and it's it's really a, a great thing to have watched this happen. And I don't think it would have happened if the farms had not gotten bigger, so they could support a couple families. Support a couple family, probably an employee or two. And... Yes, a lot of them have employees also. And, you know, they actually can do a better job at things like uh, like animal care. Okay. We, you because... know, we, have to, we have to take our next break. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> this is so exciting here. I forget all about taking the breaks. But we'll take this break and we'll be right back. Information is power. That's why WL makes a great, great partner for this program because we're trying to give you the information, giving you the information about cooperatives so you can go out and you can find a co-op, a credit union, a housing co-op, a food co-op, a dairy co-op, or you can look in the in the grocery stores for Cabot Creamery and other co-ops like Ocean Spray, Land O'Lakes. There's a lot of different co-ops out there that have co-op um, products that you could buy or you could start your own and CDF uh, corporate development foundation is having the hall of fame and Dr. Stammer is a member and he's going to be inducted into the cooperative hall of fame, but they also have funds to hold. This is the co-op hall of fame is a fundraiser so that they can have funds to help people start their co-ops. And the dinner is on May the 8th. And it's a whole day talking about, about co-ops. So, Dr. Stammer, we were talking about Agrimark and Cabot Creamery, which you became the CEO of both of those. And the contributions of the dairy industry, uh, you talked about how the economical viability, sustainability, social environmental contributions to the dairy farmers. So you had a lot to do with this, what you were just talking about. At least you've been given credit for it. I, I probably get too much credit. <laughs> you know, people have asked me, how did you make this company successful from a bankrupt company? Mm-hmm. And I've often said, you know, I had a great staff and I was a good listener. I had some very talented people who worked for the company who had really good ideas, but they they really weren't listened to before. and. So when I took over CEO, I really listened to my staff. And in fact, few I advised, you know, you learn more if you listen than if you talk. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I really, I, I listened to these talented people um, and then made decisions on, you know, what they told me. So it's, it's really because of them the thing is successful. I, you know, I said I, I was the band leader, but the band leader's no good without, you know, a good first trumpet and violin and drums and everything else. It, it really takes that to make it happen. So you all work cooperatively. You worked as a team. And Very much. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the other things I've heard a lot on this program when I've talked to people in the leadership positions and not in leadership positions is that 
in the co-op, you have to work together. That's what it's all about and learning how to work together. How did you all resolve conflict? Or you never had conflict, I'm sure. Oh, we had lots of conflict. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you have very bright people, and, and I encouraged everybody, you know, to speak up and put their ideas out there, you know, and sometimes we could reach a conclusion, and sometimes the orchestra leader has to say, okay, that's the way we're going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were a good enough team that, If I said that's the way we were going, that's the way we went, and everybody, you know, everybody rode the boat in the same direction. But, no, we had, when we would have staff meetings, we had a lot of conflict. (laughs) You know, everybody with a good idea, but every, and, you know, we discussed them, we discussed them, and then we decided which way to go. So did you all have training in conflict resolution, anything like that? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. No, I, I guess it was just something that, you know, when I was uh, when I was a professor, we, we spent a, uh, about three or four years, uh, my wife and I being residence counselors in a, a student apartment conf- complex. Mm-hmm. And I really self-learned a lot about conflict management. Okay. When you got four people living together who can't live together over little things, and they come to you, you know, you sort of, uh, you kind of work it out. So I guess it was on the job training for conflict management. Because I've seen some training, the fifth principle of co-ops, there's seven main principles, although Mandragon has 10, they've added three more to the 1844 principles, co-op principles. The fifth one is the one I, that's one of the reasons I started liking co-ops is because of training information and so some people on here have talked about part of their training was conflict uh, resolution, uh, you know, the, the financials, the, the statements, and whatever organization is in and learning about that organization. Um, this kind of training you were talking about you do for young people to understand co-ops yep. and how co-ops work. So all of that training I, I really like about, about co-ops because I got it that it's, I mean, the Bible says we're, two or more people are gathered, God is there. And I have it that the reason God has to be there is because there's going to be conflict. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, there's two or more. Yeah. Well, but we, we do in our young cooperator program, actually we run programs on, because most of these are family businesses. So we run programs with them. We bring in outside people on conflict management on the farm and on things like succession planning. How do you do this on the farm? These are often tough things to talk about within a family. Yeah. And so so we actually offer, you know, training in that to our young cooperative members. Yeah. What what do you do when dad doesn't want to give you any responsibility? Mm-hmm. And you want responsibility. And you also succession planning, you gotta talk that you gotta talk about dad not being there one day. And that's sometimes right. that's hard enough. And dad doesn't want to talk about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a hard conversation for a lot of people. So you've you've done something really, really well because Cabot now is has expanded from a Vermont basically a local business selling their cheese and other products. You got you got cheese and it's Cabot Creamery. So what are the products right. of Cabot Creamery besides cheese? That's the So we sell uh cheese 
uh, butter, and cultured dairy products, cottage cheese, uh, yogurt, dips. That's basically our product line. We, we have a few other things we sell, like whipped cream, but uh, but cheese cheese is the real heart and soul of our business. And then I would I'd say butter and cultured products. Cheese we pretty much sell throughout the United States. Cultured products because of their shorter shelf life. Mm-hmm. We sell on the East Coast, and butter is more of a I would say a New England New York product. You you may find a few other places, but it that's more of a regional product. But how did you get into this whey protein thing? Well, you remember Miss Muffet, right? Miss <laughs> Muffet? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. When you make cheese, you get two products. You get cheese curds and you get whey. And whey is basically made up of lactose, which is a dairy, dairy sugar and some proteins. And basically in the older days, that was dumped on the field, the whey. And it polluted streams, and it was really it was really a waste product. So as, as more environmental consciousness came about, that you know it really wasn't good to have this, dump this stuff in streams. We had to figure out uh, what to do with it. And this just is nuts. This is the in, this is Nagramark. This is the industry. So what we found out was you could take this whey product and separate it into two products. One, which is lactose, which is basically sugar, milk sugar, and the other, which is whey protein concentrate, which is a high-valued protein. And the whey protein concentrate, what I'd say to you is, say we have you from uh, life to death with whey protein concentrate. From babies to, yeah. Right. If you look at infant formula, it's basically whey protein concentrate. If you look at bodybuilder supplements, it's whey protein concentrate. And if you look at Ensure, it's whey protein concentrate. So it's kind of a miracle protein that uh, we used to dump on the field. Wow. So it's really pretty big success story. Yes. Now, we only have a couple of minutes left, sir, and I really would like for you at 75 years old and highly successful, what would you like to leave people with? What's your thought message? I, I guess my thought message is I hope people explore, get interested in co-ops. I hope they join co-ops because I, I think you'll, you'll learn more about a co-op when you actually join one and see what it's what it's there for, but then think think about what you could do in your everyday life that, you know, you might be able to do cooperatively. And I, there's so much stuff that I think people could look at. And, and as you said, I you know, I'm a member of a credit union, um, a food co-op. I mean, I believe in the cooperative model. And I, I think it makes a better life for people. I think and we got... I think we've got to leave it there. It makes for a better life for people. Yep. I agree. <laughs> All right, sir. Sir, thank All you right. very much. And I'll look forward to meeting you at the dinner at the Hall right. of Fame. Thank you, thank you very I'll much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.